Chapter One of Stories of the Ships by Lewis Ransom Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Three: The Story of the Sydney, the Signalman's Tale. It may be that it is because, since the outbreak of the war, the British sailor has constantly been riding the crest of the wave of great events, that he is so prone to regard even the most dramatic and historic actions in which he has chanced to figure as little or nothing removed from the ordinary run of his existence, as only a slightly different screening of the regular grist of the mill of his daily service thus i once heard a young officer describing a night destroyer action in which he had played a notable part as having been like a hot game of rugger only not quite so dirty and another assert that his most vivid recollection of a day in which he had performed a deed of personal daring that had carried his name to the end of the civilized world was of how jolly good his dinner tasted that night it was this attitude which was largely responsible for the fact that although there were upwards of the three or four score officers and men who had taken part in the sinking of the emden still in her i spent several days in the sydney before i found any one who appeared to consider that stirring action as anything other than the mustiest of ancient history and as such of no conceivable interest at a time when every thought was centred upon the vital present and the pregnant future rather than upon the irrevocably buried past and in the end it was more by luck than deliberate design that the two actors in the historic drama which i had set myself the task of learning something of at the first hand came to tell me of the parts they had played that they were the two who had what were perhaps more comprehensive opportunities for observation than any others was my sheer good fortune it was toward midnight of a day of light cruiser exercises that i first stumbled upon the trail which i had hitherto sought vainly to uncover with all hands at night defence stations and steaming at half speed through the most impenetrable blackness we were groping blindly for an uncertainly located target in an endeavour to reproduce the conditions under which enemy destroyers might be expected to be encountered in the darkness suddenly the sharp bang of a small calibre gun sounded followed by the shriek of a speeding projectile and presently the glare of a down-floating star-shell shed its golden-gray radiance over the misty surface of the sea instantly the unleashed searchlight beams leapt to a distant little patch of rectangular canvas gliding along through the luminous fog on our port beam and the fraction of a second later following the red flame stabs and the thunderous crashes of a broadside it disappeared in the midst of ghostly green-white geysers of tossing spray it was while flash blinded and gun deafened i fumbled about on the deck of the signal bridge for the ear defender that the nervous jerk of my head had flirted loose that i heard a quiet voice speaking in the darkness beside me as a hard hand brushed mine in the search you'll find sir the cotton wool's a good sight better than one of them patent ear protectors it said i suppose it was one of them mallet armors that you plug in i had a pair of that kind when we went after the emden and they kicked out just like yours did at the first salvo you can bet i was deaf as a toad before we finished polishing her off 
i was watching the whole of that show sir from just where you're standing now the voice went on after the lost defender had been found and replaced and it was just behind you that the shell that sheared off our range finder and killed the range taker passed on through the screen and into the sea it was either that shell or the fragment of another i could never quite make sure which that cut off and carried away one half of a pair of prism glasses hanging there leaving the other just as good as ever we still have the remnant in our mess as a memento flash and roar and that spectral upheaving of foam fountains in the converging rays of the searchlights crowded most other things out of the next hour or two and it was only when the night firing was over and we were headed back for our anchorage in the cold light of the early dawn that i discovered that it was a young signalman who had been standing watch beside me during the exercises keen and alert he looked in spite of the sleepless night behind him and it was easy to believe him when he told me that his had been the honour of being the first man in the sydney to sight the strange ship which subsequently turned out to be the long-sought-for emden it was just the luck of my chancing to be on watch with a good pair of glasses he said modestly but that was by no means the limit of my luck in connection with the emden show when we went to action stations i was ordered to come up here and do nothing but keep an eye on the collier that had been standing by the emden at first but which got away under full steam just as soon as it was plain we were going to give her what for i carried out orders all right as far as keeping an eye on the collier was concerned but my other eye and my mind were on the emden ring of the circus i don't really suppose there was another man on the sydney who had as little to do and therefore as much time to see what was going on as i did but that wasn't the end of my luck for i was one of the party that went ashore the next morning to round up the huns that had landed on direction island and then after that i was in the first boat that went to bring off prisoners from the emden so you see i had a fairly good all-round kind of a look-see my training as a signalman made it natural for me to jot down things as i saw them and i think that i still have a page of memorandum where i made notes during the fight of what time some of the things happened if you'd like to see it sir then i knew that i at last had the sort of story i had been looking for in prospect and before going below for my cup of ship's cocoa as a preliminary to turning in i had arranged for a yarn in the first dog watch that evening it was indeed good luck to hear the account of the historic action from one who besides having had such exceptional opportunities for seeing the various phases of it also appeared to be well-educated and a trained observer. "'I'm sorry I couldn't find one of the Emden's cat-o'-nine-tails,' were my visitor's first words when he appeared at the door of the captain's sea-cabin, where I awaited him after tea. But the fact is that the most of us have taken the best of our little remembrances of that show ashore for safekeeping, and those dusters were the things we prized more than anything else as showing the Hun up for the bully he really is.' what did they use them for well if you'd believe their story it was to dust their togs after coaling ship we brought back about twenty of them with the rest of the salvage and at first we were rather inclined to take it for straight when they said they used them for dusters 
then one of our prisoners got hold of more than his share of our beer one night and became drunk and truthful at the same time he confessed that they had been used on the men time and again just in ordinary routine to keep them up to the mark on discipline he also said that they had been used freely during the fight with the sydney and that when the lashes failed to give sufficient encouragement something more drastic was used but i'll tell you about that in its place but you see what real prizes those cats were sir in the way of holding the hun up to the light so you could see through him so to speak my cat was a brand new one but the most of the lot were black and stiff with blood we'd been rather playing at war up to the time we fought the emden he went on having spent most of the opening months purifying the marshals carolines new britain and new guinea by cleaning the huns out of them there had been a few skirmishes ashore but nothing at all at sea nor did the prospects of anything of the kind seem any better in early november than they had been right along up to then we missed our big fight when with the australia melbourne and the french cruiser montcalm we came within twenty-four hours of connecting with von Spee's squadron when they swept through the south pacific on their way to south american waters with that gone there didn't seem much to look forward to until we were sent to the north sea and we were rather hoping when we set out from australia with a convoy in the first week of november that we might keep going right on to europe we knew of course that the emden was still in business but we also knew that any ship had about as much chance of finding her in the indian ocean as you have of finding the finger ring you lost in the coal bunkers certainly we didn't expect that going out in force with a convoy would be the means of bringing her to the end of her tether the first and only word we had that a raider was in our vicinity was in the form of a broken message from the cocoa station which never got further than strange cruiser is at entrance of harbour at that point the strange cruiser managed to work an effective jam and it was not long before the cocoa's call ceased entirely although we did not learn it until a couple of days later this was caused by the destruction of the station by a landing party from the emden under lieutenant muck the escorting warships were the sydney her sister the melbourne and a japanese cruiser larger and with bigger guns but slower than we the jap without waiting for orders from the captain of the melbourne who was the senior officer of the convoy dashed off at once and was only recalled with difficulty a message which the japanese captain sent to account for his break was most amusing we do not trust the skipper ship emden it read he is one tricky fellow and must be watched as the job was one for a fast light cruiser the choice was between the sydney and melbourne and it was because the skipper of the melbourne who was the senior officer did not feel that he had authority to leave the convoy that the sydney had the call we worked up to top speed quickly and were soon tearing through the water headed for cocos island at over twenty-six knots an hour i don't remember that there was any special excitement in the sydney that morning we had dashed off on too many wild goose chases already to feel that there was very much of a chance of finding our bird this time in fact i don't remember being as nervous at any stage of this emden show as in a night attack we made upon rabal in new britain where never a shot was fired 
there had been some telefunken messages in the air during the night undecipherable of course but that was only to be expected everyone seemed even more inclined to crack jokes than usual and that is saying a good deal i remember especially that some of the officers were making very merry over the fact that lieutenant g prepared for action by going to the barber and having his hair cut something that he didn't do very often it was about seven in the morning when the broken message was picked up and at eight i was sent aloft to relieve the lookout it was nine fifteen when the ragged fringe of the cocoa-nut palms of direction island the main one of the cocoa's keeling group began to poke up over the horizon and perhaps ten minutes later that my glasses made out the dim but unmistakable outline of three funnel tops although we hadn't studied silhouettes at that stage of the game to anything like as much as we've had a chance to since that trio of smokestacks marked her for a hun and probably the emden or Königsberg. just which it was we never knew for certain till after we'd put her out of action and picked up the crew of the collier that accompanied her just before i went aloft i heard one of the officers make an offer of a pound to the boy that was first to sight the enemy i didn't come under that rating myself but it occurred to me instantly that it would never do to let all that money go unearned so i leaned over broke the news to a puka boy who was aloft with me and told him to sing it out he got the quid all right and for a long time at least he got all credit and kudos of actually being the first to sight the emden when i finally told the captain about the way it really happened he laughed and said it served me right for trying to dabble in high finance i never understood quite what he meant but always fancied high had some reference to me being aloft and finance referred to the quid the first sign of life i saw on the emden was when she started blowing her siren this although we did not know it at the time was an attempt to call back the party she had sent ashore to destroy the wireless station luckily for that lot there was no time for them to come off the emden did not as i have read in several accounts of the action attempt to close immediately but rather had it off in what appeared to be an endeavour to clear the land and make a run of it to the southern it was only when her skipper saw that the converging course we were steering was going to cut him off in that direction that he took the bull by the horns and tried to shorten the range to one at which his four-point ones would have the most effect there is no use denying that we were taken very much by surprise when the enemy fired his ranging shot at ten thousand five hundred yards for we had hardly expected him to open at over seven or eight thousand still more surprising was the accuracy of that shot for it fell short only by about a hundred yards and went wobbling overhead in a wild ricochet his next was a broadside salvo which straddled us and his third about ten minutes after his opener was a hit and a right smart hit it was though its results were by no means so bad as they might have been i had the finest kind of a chance to see everything that that first shell did to us it began by cutting off a pair of signal halyards on the engaged side then tore a leg off the range taker then sheared off the stand supporting the range finder itself went through the hammocks lining the inside of the upper bridge and finally down through the canvas screen of the signal bridge behind where you were standing last night 
and on into the sea if it had exploded it could hardly have failed to kill the captain navigator and gunnery lieutenant and probably pretty well all the rest of us on both bridges you may well believe sir that we were rather in a mess for some minutes following that smash but i remember that the officers and especially the captain and navigator were as cool as ice through it all the captain went right on walking round the compass taking his sights and giving his orders while the pilot was squatting on top of the conning tower and following the emden through his glasses just as though she had been a horse race i even remember him finding time to laugh at me when i ducked as one or two of the first shells screamed over no use trying to get under the screen seabrook he said that canvas won't stop em it was almost immediately after this that the after control located about amidships met with even a worse disaster through being hit squarely with two or three shells from a closely bunched salvo i had a clear view in that direction from where i stood and chanced to be looking that way when the crash came i saw a lot of arms and legs mixed up in the flying wreckage but the sight i shall never forget was a whole body turning slowly in the air like a dummy in a kinema picture of an explosion as the profile of the face showed sharp against the sky for an instant i recognized it as that of a chap who had been rather a pal of mine and so knew that poor old m had got his a couple of hours before i heard it from the surgeon it was some minutes before there was any chance to look after the rangefinder whose leg had been taken off by that first shell they bundled the mangled fragments of his body together as best they could in one of those neil robertson folding stretchers and i helped the party get it down the ladders as the leg was cut off close up to the body the poor chap had bled terribly and there was no chance of saving him while i was edging along the deck with the stretcher party i saw out of the corner of my eye what appeared to be a very funny sight one of the crew of s two which was not engaged at the time dabbling his foot in a bucket of water when i came back i saw that it was anything but funny two of the crews of starboard guns had been badly knocked about by the explosion of shells striking the deck at the end of their long high-angle flight among these was the chap i had seen apparently cooling his feet in a water bucket as a matter of fact it was no foot at all he was dabbling but only a maimed stump the foot had been carried away by a shell fragment and the brave chap not wanting to be put on the shelf by going down to the surgeon had all on his own scooped up a canvas bucket full of salt water and was soaking his stump in it in an endeavour to stop the flow of blood he was biting through his lip with the smart of the brine on the raw flesh as i came up but as i turned and looked back from the ladder leading up to the bridge i saw him hobble painfully across the deck and climb back into his sight-setter's seat behind his gun i have forgotten now whether it was another wound or further loss of blood from this one which finally bowled him over and put him out of the fight he wanted so much to see through to a finish these i have mentioned were the several shots from the emden which were responsible for our total casualties of four killed and eleven wounded of other hits one took a big bite out of the mainmast but not quite enough to bring it down another scooped a neat hollow out of the shield of the foremost starboard gun and bounced off into the sea 
leaving two or three of the crew who had been in close contact with the shield half paralyzed for a few moments from the sharp shock still another ploughed through a grating two bulkheads and the commander's cabin and finally nipped into the sea all without exploding next to the knocking out of the range-finders perhaps our most troublesome injury was from a shell-hole in the forecastle deck through which the water from the big bow-wave the sydney was throwing up entered and flooded the boys mess deck by means of the watertight doors we managed to confine the flooding to that flat only there is no doubt that for the first fifteen or twenty minutes of the fight the emden had the best of it this was probably due mainly to her luck in putting both our range-finders out of action in what were practically her opening shots it took her three ranging shots to find us though and once we started we did the same with her our first salvo fell beyond her the next both short and wide but two or three shells from the third found their mark and we were no less lucky than the emden with our first hits for where she knocked out our gunnery control by disabling our range-finders we did the same to her by shooting away the voice-pipes of her conning tower from which captain von Müller directed the action just as soon as we started hitting the emden she stopped hitting us in fact i don't think from then on to the end she dropped another shell aboard us going aft to see if a small cordite fire had been put out i noticed the crew of one of the port guns p three i think it was which was not in a position to train at that moment amusing themselves by chalking messages on their shells i don't remember all of them as there was a good deal of a variety one shell had emden on it to make sure it would go to the right address i suppose another had cheerio and good luck on it and another simply kaiser they were a proper lot of don't give a hangs that grew with the emden shell no longer bursting about our ears i had a better chance to watch the effect of our fire upon her i still have the page of memorandum on which i noted the time that a few things happened during the next hour i will run through it so you can see just the way the show went at ten o'clock the range was about eight thousand yards a distance which the captain evidently reckoned our guns would do the most harm to the emden and hers the least to us she was trying to close this for some time but the sydney was using her superior speed to keep her right there so that in a way she was chasing us at this stage of the game the effect of our fire upon the emden first began to show just after ten and at ten four i made a note that her fore funnel had disappeared at ten thirty our lyddite caused a big explosion at the foot of her mainmast making a fire which never was entirely got under control at ten thirty four her foremast and with it the fore control collapsed under a hard hit and disappeared over the far side at ten forty one a heavy salvo struck her amidships sending the second funnel after the first and starting a fierce fire in the engine-room at eleven eight the third funnel went the way of the other two and when i looked up from writing that down i saw that the fore bridge had done the disappearing act almost immediately the emden altered course and headed straight for the beach of north keeling island which she had been rapidly nearing during the last hour 
the sydney fired her last salvo at eleven fifteen and then the captain seeing that the enemy was securely aground turned away and started in hot pursuit of the collier this collier as we learned presently was a former british ship the burrasque which had been captured by the emden some time before and put in charge of a german prize crew if her skipper had not felt sure that the emden was going to do for us he could have easily steamed out of sight while the engagement was on as it was he lingered too long and we had little difficulty in pulling up to a range from which we could put a warning shell across the runaway's bows that brought her up but the hun naval ensign was kept flying until a signal was made for it to be struck that brought the rag down on the run but her skipper prevented it falling into our hands by burning it no sooner was our boarding officer over her side than a mob of chinese stokers crowded about him shouting in pidgin english that puff puff boat goody biggy holy no more stopside can walkie rushing below our men found the seacocks open with their spindles bent in a way to make closing impossible as the ship was already getting a list on there was nothing to do but take the prisoners off and let her go down to make sure that there was no trick about the game that no concealed crew had been left behind to stop the leaks by some prearranged contrivances and steam away with her as soon as it was dark the sydney pumped four shells into her at short range and she was burning fiercely from fires started by these when the water closed over her then at a somewhat more leisurely gait we steamed back to see how it fared with the emden it was now about the middle of the afternoon and the first thing we noticed standing out sharp in the rays of the slanting sun was the naval ensign flying at the still upright mainmast of the emden the instant he saw this the captain made the signal by flag do you surrender to this emden made back by moore's flag have no signal books which meant of course if it was true that he couldn't read our first signal then using morse flag which they had already shown they understood we repeated the signal do you surrender there was no answer to this and again we repeated it as there was still no answer and as there was no sign whatever of anything in the way of a white flag being shown anywhere the captain had no alternative but to continue the action i have always been glad that i heard the captain's orders to the gunnery lieutenant at this time for the point is one on which the hun survivors were even then ready to start lying we were at fairly close range and i heard lieutenant raheli ask the captain about what part of the ship he should direct his fire the captain studied the emden through his glass for a few moments and then remarking that most of the men appeared to be bunched at the opposite ends of the ship on the forecastle and quarter-deck said he thought that there would be less chance of killing any one if the fire was directed somewhere between those two points then i heard him give the definite order open fire and aim for foot of mainmast and that was the word that was passed on to the guns the port guns fired if i remember right three quick salvos and we were just turning to give the starboard ones a chance when a man was seen clambering up the solitary stick of the emden and the word was passed don't fire without further orders at the same time a white flag which i later learned was a tablecloth was displayed from the quarter-deck a moment later the naval ensign fluttered down 
and shortly i saw the smoke of new fire on the quarter-deck i surmised rightly that they were following the example of the burrasque in burning their flag to prevent its capture but what else was going up in that fire i did not learn until i swarmed up to that deck the next day it was an unfortunate fact that our guns which there had been no time to overhaul were suffering a good deal from the strain of their hard firing during the battle as a consequence their shooting was by no means as accurate as at the beginning of the action and several of the shells went wide of the point at which it was endeavoured to direct them there is no doubt that they wrought sad havoc among the crowd on the forecastle, and I don't think our prisoners were exaggerating much when they said that those three last salvos killed sixty and wounded a good many more, and also that a number of others were drowned by jumping into the surf in the panic that followed. One could feel a lot worse about it, though, if the whole thing hadn't been due to the sheer pig-headedness of their skipper in trying to bluff us into letting him keep his flag up. He has the blood of every man that was killed by those last unnecessary shots on his hands, just as much as his brother Huns have those of the women and children they have murdered in France and Belgium. Von Müller was brave all right, there's nothing against him on that score, but it was nothing but his pride and a selfish desire to keep his face with his superiors whenever he got back to Germany that led him to force us to fire those entirely needless shots into his ship. He thought that he would cut a better figure at his court-martial if his colours were shot down rather than lowered in surrender. But if he was so anxious to make a proper naval finish, why did he run his ship ashore instead of fighting it out on the seas the huns make such a shouting about battling for the freedom of if he had done that instead of trying to bluff us like the bully the hun always is he'd have saved a good many lives that he sacrificed in trying to save his own name there would have been a few wounded drowned in that case that were saved by beaching the emden but these were more than offset by his forcing us to fire those last shots that there was no need in the world for firing if von Müller hadn't tried to bluff about the flag i've never had any patience sir with all that has been said and written about von Müller being a sportsman that reputation was gained wholly through the sportsmanship of the sydney's officers who because they'd given the emden a licking in a fair give-and-take fight didn't think it was quite the proper thing to speak ill of her captain even if it was the truth and one other thing sir while i'm speaking of this incident every time i hear anyone talk about negotiating with the huns i tell them that story of von muller's bluff about his flag he pretended not to understand our signals just because it served his purpose not to understand them but when our guns began to talk he had no difficulty in translating their language well sir the huns are all alike they never will understand any language but that of guns until their bully streak is knocked out of them with guns it's a dirty job sir but that's the only way to finish it the lad's fine blue eyes were flashing and his face red with excitement and he took out a handkerchief and wiped the perspiration from his brow before resuming his narrative it was getting too late in the day to start rescue work on the emden he went on more quietly and so we did the best we could for her for the present by sending in a boat manned by prisoners from the burrasque with food and water and a message to the effect that we would return early in the morning 
then we put out to sea for we thought we still had to reckon with the Königsberg turning up at any moment and didn't want her to surprise us as we had surprised the emden crossing the track of the battle we sighted and picked up three hun seamen who claimed to have been blown from the deck of the emden by the explosion of one of our shells none of them much the worse for their experience indeed the fact that they were not in worse shape rather led us to suspect that they had jumped overboard to avoid the explosion of our shell rather than as a direct consequence of an explosion i don't exactly remember whether it was one of these chaps or one of the english-speaking prisoners from the burrest who by blurting out something about how lucky were his mates who got ashore before the fight started gave us our first inkling that the emden had sent a landing party to direction island to destroy the wireless station there were three officers and forty men he told us and this we later learned to be the truth what he did not tell us quite possibly because he did not know of it was the fact that besides being armed with rifles this party also carried three machine-guns it was only by chance that our failure to reckon with this latter fact did not get us into serious trouble indeed i think it was more than likely that i would not be here talking to you now but for the happy fact that the little schooner ayesha lying in direction harbour offered a chance of escape too promising for the officer in command of the party to resist the rounding up of this lot of course had the call over everything else and at first the captain appeared to be considering putting back to direction at once and landing in the night luckily indeed it was for us that we didn't for that as we learned later from the wireless station people was just what the germans had expected and prepared for had we gone in in the night we would have found the only landing-place covered by machine-guns and we would probably have stepped off into an ambush that would have wiped the lot of us out in a minute or two landing at dawn however we found our birds flown and i for one was jolly glad to hear it after they had told us what a resolute fellow the german officer leading the party was and how determined he had been to make a resistance this chap by the way was leutnant mulke who later found his way back to germany by way of turkey when i read three or four months later of how well he had used those same machine-guns he had mounted to receive us against the arabs in fighting his way up the coast of the red sea i realized the extent to which we had been asking for trouble in landing armed only as we were not expecting any resistance we had no machine-guns and i think there were several others who like myself had been given only revolvers since the sydney's lucky star was in the ascendant for the whole show however no harm came of it you may be sure that the wireless station people were glad to see us for they had never been sure until they had seen the last of muki and his men just how the hun might use them in case the latter determined to fight it out to the last ditch on direction island one of them told me that he had visions of being used as a human shield against the sydney's shells like the huns used the women and children in belgium they were a proper devil-may-care lot those ones and i can quite believe the story that they asked the huns to come and play tennis with them when they got tired of watching the one-sided fight between the sydney and emden 
as we were in a hurry to get back to the emden we did not remain long ashore on direction their doctor came off with us to help with the wounded and with him came two or three others of the wireless people to have a hurried look-see at the sydney these latter intended to return to shore at once in their own boat but by some mistake the whaler was cast off and the sydney got under way while the inspector was still in conversation with the captain they were about to ring down to stop the engines when the chap with a good-bye wave of his hand ran to the port rail and disappeared in a header over the side a moment later he reappeared settled his helmet back upon his head and struck out in a leisurely way for the boat which was pulling back to meet him it was quite the coolest thing of the kind i ever saw but i didn't appreciate it fully until an hour or so later when i saw the black triangular fins of countless tiger sharks converging from every direction upon where the emden had been casting her dead into the surf of north keeling island scarcely had we entered again the waters through which the battle had been fought than we began to sight floating bodies this was only to be expected of course but what did surprise us was to come upon a wounded man in a life-belt being pushed slowly shoreward by an unwounded mate who had nothing whatever to keep him up although they had been in the water all of twenty-four hours both were in fairly good shape when we picked them up and the unwounded chap was quite his own hunnish self again after he had a night's sleep and a couple of square meals in fact if i remember right he was one of the worst of several of the prisoners who seemed to think it was their privilege to keep the stewards told off to look after them running day and night after beer as we neared the emden i saw that she was flying the international signal for in want of immediate assistance we lowered two boats and in the one of these under lieutenant g i was sent along in case there was any signalling to be done it was a nasty job getting aboard her for she was lying partly inside the surf and the swells were running high even under her stern as she was at right angles to the seas there was no lee side to get under and so we had to do the best we could boarding her as she was lieutenant g had a hard scramble for it and only the hands extended him by a couple of the german officers saved him from a ducking watching our chances the rest of us swarmed up between swells but it was touch and go all the time and took a long while frightful as the wreck of the emden looked from the sea it was nothing to the sheer horror of it as you saw it aboard her the picture of it is still as clear in my memory as if photographed there i will tell you first about the ship itself the great and growing hole in her bows where she was pounding the reef could be seen by leaning over the side of the fore bridge only the deck remained the chart house was gone completely the foremast though more or less intact to the foretop had been shattered at the base by shells and was lying over the port side shrouded with wreckage the fore control top i could not find at all and the fore topmast had also disappeared completely from the foremast to the main which was still standing was one tangled mass of wreckage and of this the wireless room which looked like a curio shop struck by lightning was the worst mess 
two of the funnels were knocked flat over the port battery crushing several bodies under them and a third the foremost one was leaning against the wreck of the bridge all about the starboard battery the deck was torn with gaping holes and through these one could see that the whole inside of her was no more than a blown out and burnt out shell there was one place where it was a straight drop from the quarter-deck to the inner skin of the bottom but it was the men the dead and wounded that provided the real horror in the first place there had been something over three hundred and fifty officers and men in the emden when we boarded her a hundred and eighty-five of these were alive but something like half of them were wounded most of them very badly this number included a score or so who had jumped or been blown overboard and had swum waded or been washed by the surf on to the beach of the island even the unwounded were very cowed and apathetic the only exceptions i remember being the captain and one or two other officers by no means all of the dead had been thrown over in the twenty-four hours that had now passed since the battle and not nearly as much had been done for the wounded as might have been done even considering the difficulties some of the wounded had not even been dragged out of the sun and it was the wounds of these as i learned later from one of our sick-bay stewards that were much the worse infested with the maggots which the tropical heat had started breeding almost immediately because no antiseptics had been applied a considerable quantity of medical stores had been uninjured by the fighting i was told and the proper use of these would have made the greatest difference in saving lives and preventing a lot of suffering i could tell you just what swine it was that was responsible for this but i'd rather you got the facts from one of the officers i think our surgeon could tell you something of the way things were horrible as were some of the mutilations from shell fragments by far the most shocking injuries seemed to have been inflicted by our lyddite the hair and clothes were entirely burnt from some of the bodies and the sides of these which had been exposed to the blast of the flame spurts were cooked to the colour of cold mutton most of the bodies that had been thrown or blown overboard were being washed into the beach by the surf and there was a fringe of them lying in rumpled heaps above high-water mark this was only about a hundred yards from the bow of the emden and some of our men said that they saw the big land-crabs crawling and fighting over them and also worrying some of the wounded who had crawled a little further inshore under the cocoa palms these men ashore had most of them jumped overboard when those three last salvos were pumped into her and as it was not possible for us to reach and bring them off till the following day their suffering from thirst and from the attacks of the crabs must have been very terrible indeed all of this would of course have been avoided but for von muller's trying to bluff us into leaving his flag flying after his ship was beached and out of action most of the unwounded men who jumped overboard were probably washed ashore before the sharks had a chance to get to them but the more helpless of the wounded who went over outside of where the surf was breaking must have been attacked almost at once 
the sea tigers were still fighting over some of the fragments even after rescue work had commenced and i still shudder when i think of the shock it gave me the first time i saw a floating body start to wriggle as a shark nosed into it from beneath it was a seaman in a white suit and sun helmet floating face down and as the monster seized it the jerks made it give two or three quick overhead flops of the arms for all the world like a man striking out to swim the australian crawl there were sharks following along astern of every boatload of wounded we pulled back to the sydney just as if they thought we were robbing them of something that belonged to them by rights but perhaps the thing that shocked me most of all terrible as were the sights on every hand was something one of the surviving officers i think he was of warrant rank said to me shortly after i came over the side although he was quite unwounded he was lolling in the shade of a blanket thrown over some wreckage and making no effort to help in the thousand and one things that might have been done to ease the suffering of his mates he spoke fairly good english and i learned afterwards he had been a steward on a norddeutscher lloyd liner on the australian run raising himself on his elbow but not leaving his comfortable retreat he called out to me i say my boy why was it der zidneys every time turned to a stern on instead of bows on there was the hun for you that little point about the way the sydney happened to turn once or twice had evidently puzzled him and the question had been occupying his hunnish mind in a moment when any other kind of a human being but a german would have been working his head off to make life a little less of a hell for the men who had fought beside him and under him sickened by the shambles all around and half choked as i was by the horrible reek from the bodies of the dead and wounded it took all the control i had to keep from putting my foot in the ruffian's bloated face i learned a good many things in those few hours i spent in the emden of the way of the hun officers with their men and the cat-o'-nine-tails i have told you of were not the worst a rather decent sort of chap who said that he had learned his english working on a scotchman's farm in argentina took me to a doorway leading to a flat from which a ladder had descended to the engine-room and stokeholes across that doorway was lying the body of an officer which nobody seemed to have taken the trouble to move he was the gunnery lieutenant the chap said and had been driving up stokers at the point of his revolver to serve a gun whose crew had been knocked out when he was killed the officer's body was somewhat scorched by lyddite but from the line of the burns it looked as if they were made after he fell what looked to me very much like a bullet wound in the side of the head struck me at once as the likely cause of his death did one of his own men shoot him i asked but the chap seeing a young officer who i later learned was a prince franz joseph hohenzollern a relative of the kaiser approaching only shrugged his shoulder and raised his eyebrows and walked away i didn't like to ask about the incident after the men were prisoners on the sydney but just the same there has never been any doubt in my mind as to what occurred most of my time on the emden was put in standing by on the quarter-deck in case there was any signalling to be done and this gave me a good chance to get a line on a little ceremony which had been carried out there just after she sent her flag down 
we had seen them burn that flag but just what other things went into that fire we never knew exactly the nature of some of them however i began to surmise when i came upon charred fragments of bank of england notes lying about among the wreckage and sticking in the cracks of the warped deck several coins which i picked up turned out to be english shillings and german marks i noticed that some of our lads were pushing the surge with much energy whenever they had a chance paying especial attention to the cracks between the charred planking and the deck when fire-blackened gold sovereigns began to make their appearance in the sydney and kept appearing even after we had been for months in the west indies and south atlantic i understood the reason for their energy when the prisoners were searched on board the sydney several of them were found to be in possession of english sovereigns one of them gave the paymaster a bag containing over a hundred for safe keeping which they claimed to be their own it was not until they had been disembarked at colombo that it turned out that one of them had confessed that among other things thrown into that fire on the quarter-deck of the emden was all the treasure she had seized from the british merchant ships she had sunk during her career as a raider this included sixty thousand pounds in gold sovereigns and an unknown amount in banknotes the latter were consumed and the gold after the bags had been burned away from it was swept into the sea it was in this way that the few stray coins picked up lingered behind in the gaping cracks opened up by shells bursting in the enclosed spaces under the quarter-deck at this juncture a messenger came to summon my young friend to the signal bridge but he lingered at the door long enough to say that he had fully made up his mind to go back to north keeling island after the war and have a try at raking up some of that scuttled treasure there's no sand where she was lying sir only hard coral reef that ought to catch the coins in the holes and prevent them from being washed away my only fear is that the coral may grow over and cover it up before i am free to get out there do you know how fast a coral island grows sir i replied that i was not sure about it but that i seemed to have some kind of an impression that the coral insect couldn't erect much more than a thirty-second of an inch of island a year adding that i didn't think that a few inches of coral could make much difference with a big heap of gold like that in any case perhaps not sir he assented but all the same i'm hoping that it won't have had time to grow even one inch before the war's over the stuff's no use to a chap unless he can have it while he's young End of section three.